Star Trek Picard, Season 1, Episode 9, Et in Arcadia Ego Part 1, is over. But we, of course, are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. My name is Jessica Lees. We have so many things to talk about this week as we fly to uh, Coppelius Station and meet a lot of really hot twin androids. It's going to be a good time all around. And here with me to break it all down is my android twin, Mr. Mike Bloom. And twins? Twins. So yeah, many I, twins. I don't I mean, get the twin thing. It honestly looked like a double mint gum commercial for a second <laughs> with, with just, I mean, apparently nearly all the actors that they recruited to play all the Android roles, with obviously the exception of someone like Sutra, were played by real life twins. So they're not doing like a parent trap. Hey, let's get one actress to play Arcana and the same one to play Saga. Uh, they were able to actually utilize twins, which made it a lot of fun when they were doing like Worf's Klingon Kung Fu together in the little quad area. Yeah, I I mean, I want to see the spinoff series on this station. Well, I don't know. I mean, considering what happened, if something happens next week, maybe we won't want to see that spinoff. <laughs> or maybe there won't be a station to talk about anymore. We could get a prequel. I could see that. I would actually be interested in seeing the adventures of Alden Soong and Maddox, sort of like my two dadsing this entire colony of synthetic technology. Yeah, well, can we can we please talk about Alden Soong? I mean, yeah. that was not how I was expecting to see Brent Spiner. Oh, absolutely not. I think all of us were expecting to see Data. I think we even talked about this back during the dreams of like, oh, maybe this means that Soji gets to talk to her father. Maybe that's still a possibility. But they got Brent Spiner to play his third member of the Soong family. Of course, back in TNG, he played his own father, Dr. Noonien Soong, with like a DeForest Kelly level of old age makeup, who got killed by Lore in the episode he was introduced then he played, I think his name was Dr. Eric Soong in Enterprise, uh, who was, you know, a pioneer of genetic engineering. Uh, and you can sort of then see the, connect the dots to see where we get into roboticism. And here comes Alton Soong. But Jess, I feel like only finding out now about Alton Soong made me realize that Noonien Soong is kind of an asshole. <laughs> Yeah, just like a he little had, bit. He had a real son, and when we meet him, he is like holed away on some remote planet, just completely, you know, divesting himself in his life's work. And it's, I just never imagined that he had a family. I was surprised when we had that episode when uh, we found out that his wife's, you know, consciousness was transplanted into an android, and he did that to sort of preserve her legacy. I wonder how Alton Soong, th- you know, found out about that. You'd, I'm just surprised that he went up, went into the family business if there is indeed this like weird relationship between them. No, he should be in a bar somewhere, like listening to Cats in the Cradle and crying into his beer. I honestly think if there was a TNG season eight, I could see a storyline where not only does Alton soon get introduced, but he becomes a villain, especially in the absence of lore. Like to your point, this like embittered guy who's like, my father paid more attention to these androids than he did to me, and now I'm going to get revenge on them in his death. Yeah, but instead he just goes and makes more androids like that makes a lot of sense. I, I suppose so. I mean, maybe it's just that – I mean, I can imagine that Noonien Soong is also someone to take his work home. So maybe it's just how he was able to connect with his father. I don't know why I'm psychoanalyzing Elton Soong so much, but he's also like – I don't know. He's uh, – there's a lot of characters, especially by this final rally, uh, you know, android rally scene that has characters jumping sides and – Alton Soong is uh, definitively more on the side of sins than humanity. And I guess him sort of surrounding himself with that type of technology for years has proven that point. 
Yeah, he's a little bit self-loathing in that regard. Like they're having this big rally of like, organic life sucks. We're going to eliminate it all. And he's like, yeah, I hate organic life. And it's like, you, you know, you kind of are organic life, right? Well, that's the thing is, uh, I mean, let's talk about sort of, at least in my opinion, the elephant in the room, this idea of the mind transfer that he talks about with Dr. Gerardi. And I believe he says in their conversation, like, oh, uh, you know, I'm, I have a certain sense of urgency and I wonder if he's talking about his own death. I mean, he calls Picard an old man, much like himself. But Jess, let me pseudo start off this podcast by giving my big prediction for the finale. I think this is a Chekhov's golem. I think Jean-Luc Picard's consciousness is getting transferred to an android body next episode. That was, I was, I was 100% coming here to make that same prediction. Amazing. Because it just seems like... That's what we're leading up to. And I think I probably would have guessed maybe that's a weird theory and kind of out there, except that we get Picard almost dying in the first five minutes of the episode and kind of like having this little disassociative episode. That says to me that his disease is progressing and he kind of gives everybody this pep talk about his, he's like, I have an announcement to make. I have a terminal illness. Well, think- no, 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 no. His announcement is, all right, this is our plan. Oh, and one more thing, Columbo yes. style. I have this illness and I'm dying, but don't treat me any differently. Bye. Yeah. I feel like we wouldn't have brought it up again if it wasn't going to come around. And we wouldn't have brought it up in the first place if it wasn't going to come around and it wasn't going to mean something. So I'm guessing they probably built the golem to put, to put Soong into, but Picard's going to wind up there. Right. It, it could be a thing where you know, maybe in their hour of need, they end up turning to Picard. Picard maybe sacrifices himself or ends up just dying due to his condition. Uh, and then as a result, Gerardi, I think, you know, there's this really interesting conversation between Soong and Gerardi, where Soong is like, while he's definitely ticked off at Gerardi for killing Maddox, he's not so mad that he doesn't offer her a job. Uh, I think he says, you know, spare a life to essentially uh, make up for the one that you exterminated. And I wouldn't be surprised if that life is Jean-Luc Picard's, where Gerardi decides to be the one firsthand to transfer that consciousness into an android body. And that also makes things really interesting for season two, where, I mean, there's arguments about whether this is Jean-Luc Picard or it's Jean-Luc Picard really getting used to the life of a synthetic and what does that mean and i'm sure that's going to expand the allegories even further if this episode didn't do that already yeah i i thought it was a little strange that sung was about as irritated with Gerardi as he would have been if she like ate his lunch out of the fridge <laughs> exactly I, I wonder if it's because it seems like he was really not on board with Maddox's plan to go off planet and create Soji and Dodge to essentially get to the bottom of the synth attack. It seems like Maddox was a little roffy in that capacity and that like he just could not let go of that. So maybe that helps erase a bit where Soong's like, well, yes, he's dead, but he sort of deserved it because he put himself and therefore all of us in this danger. Yeah, they said he it brought out his devious side to work here. So it's like he kind of, he did a heel turn at the end. And so they don't, they're like, we we want to make really clear we don't support anything he did after he left the planet. Right, exactly. Well, let's let's talk about Capelius in general, because Jess, we're finally here after a long, long time. It has a name, it has twins. Uh, but what did you think since, I mean, this is, I think, the first episode that does not have 
a B plot. We're not investigating multiple locations. We are staying on the same planet because literally everything has crashed here. What did you think about getting to see Capelius in this penultimate hour? Well, interesting thing, Mike. Uh, do you have any? Do you have any thoughts on the origins of the name Capelius? So I know that it's. Uh, I'm trying to remember the the piece of literature, but I, I know it's a rather interesting character from literature's it's, past. It was, it's, it's a it was, ballet, actually. Oh, really? So it's not a bajazel. It's not a name pulled out of nowhere. No, it's not a bajazel. It's definitely um, anytime there's a name and it's not a total bajazel. Which I think we are now making a thing, by Absolutely. the way. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it really, everything has meaning in this world. And Capilius is particularly interesting because it is a reference to the ballet, which I'm sure there's also, the reason I know it's ballet and this is really dumb is because this is a, this is a ballet that's frequently referenced in any YA book where people do ballet because it's a ballet that's frequently staged by younger troops. And the ballet is called Capilia and it is the story of a doll maker that makes a doll that comes to life. Interesting. Yeah. You know what I was thinking of? I was thinking of Capilius from the Sandman. Uh, which ah. I'm just reading now from the Wikipedia page. Fear instilling, large and malformed man who spoiled the happiness of Nathaniel and his siblings in their childhood and may be impacted in the death of Nathaniel's father. Uh, I, I think that this is, yours is a bit more apropos to the plot, so we might want to go with that one over the the German version. Yeah. Yeah, this is a 19th century ballet. Um, and the story always comes up, uh, and I, I guess the, reason i know about it is because there's a sweet valley twins book that <laughs> leans heavily on the premise that like one of the twins injures her ankle and the other one is going to dance the role of capelia but then the one with the injured ankle decides to play the role of capelia the doll and so anyway so well, so we know that i mean it, the classification when they were investigating at the the table in the troy Riker house said that the planet was unnamed so it seems like capelia is a nickname uh, so, I mean, to your point, it might be one of those, like, we're calling it this because it represents this. It's, it's more of a literal naming. And well, I guess while we're talking about names, we should also mention uh, Et in Arcadia Ego, I believe, is a, is a reference to a painting which depicts mm -hmm. shepherds examining a tomb. And people believe it to mean that essentially, like, Arcadia is used to refer to, like, this more pastoral utopia. And it's essentially saying even death can reach, you know, the most utopian environment, which... It seems like we are about to see in more ways than one. Right. And it's interesting if you look at this painting, the color palettes in the painting itself really match what yeah. was happening on the planet. So it's a very deliberate title for an episode. And I really love the color palette as well. Like I felt, you know, Star Trek Picard, I think is a, I think Discovery with its reds and blues and yellows might be an overall more colorful, cooler show than Star Trek Picard. Star Trek Picard's in its color scheme, when I was talking with Hanalee Culpepper about this uh, back in the first few episodes, tends to skew on the warmer side. And we get it here, to your point, on Capelius, where all the twins are wearing, like, reds and pinks and browns and oranges, which not only feel like more natural colors, it stands out starkly when Narek gets brought in and he is just black against all of these much more intimate colors. Yeah, it's true. And they all have these sort of, and this is a very Star Trek-y thing to do. I feel like every other week when they would go on TNG, they would go to another planet, they would be wearing these like drapey toga things on the yeah. utopian planet. It's like, apparently, the closer your society is to ideal, 
the more drapey your wardrobe gets. Right. I remember in the first season when they go visit the Edo, which was that like weird planet where Wesley almost got the death treatment for like scuffing some flowers. Uh, <laughs> but they all like wore very loose Grecian clothing. I mean, talk about people that are obsessed with 20th century stuff, Jess. These people are obsessed with BC era clothing. They think that's sort of like where they should have stopped when it came to fashion. Well, you know, at least that makes sense. Like, at least the fetishization of that particular era, when you consider all of the things that came out of it, like you have literature and democracy and wine and all and alphabets and stuff. I I feel like that makes a lot more sense than being like super into 1930s detective novels, Jean-Luc Picard. Mm, or flowers, because I mean... I don't know if it's a Maddox thing. I don't know if it's a Soong thing, but damn, are they obsessed with flowers. They even make their defense systems into flowers. I loved these flowers. This was so cool to watch. Like this, the visual of this was just, it was so imaginative. Yeah. And I love that you didn't have any idea what was happening in the middle of it until like they landed on the planet. And I think you still kind of, it took a minute to figure out exactly that the flower is not necessarily a defense mechanism so much as a, it's a safety device mm -hmm. to help to like guide you back down to the surface. So the flower eats the La Serena and then the flower burns up, but the La Serena doesn't. Right. Exactly. So it's like a, similar it's a simultaneous like protector but also something to essentially like disengage you if you are indeed right. dangerous but i really this opening act was really interesting because i feel like especially the sequence of when they were falling to the planet i don't know for some reason it reminded me a lot of like jj abrams star trek especially when we mm -hmm. get the exterior shots of the ships engulfed in these orchids falling plus there was this just simultaneously badass yet hysterical image of the big-ass Borg cube just yep. vavooming its way out of the, the trans-warp conduit and then promptly falling to Earth. And I did love the image of when they finally got out of the La Serena, and you just see, I don't know, maybe I just didn't think of the scale of the artifact because we've always just seen, like, exteriors of it, but to see it actually in scale with the planet, you forget how incredibly massive it is, and yes, it's understandable why it probably took out three of these orchids at once because they had no idea what was coming. Yeah, I liked the orchids, like, struggling to cling to it. Yeah. Do you think, uh, should Seven have assimilated the orchids? Is that possible? I mean, they assimilate a lot of weird stuff. And, you know, I, I would be curious to see the Borg's response. Like, speaking of random throwbacks, um, I really loved Raffi's comment about murderous fungi and angry, angry reptiloids, because those are some TOS callbacks straight up. I want to see the Borg try to assimilate a Horda. Right, I think that the, I mean, obviously the, yeah, the Gorn is a good reference to the Reptile. I believe the Fungi, wasn't an episode where, like, I think that was the Akodos episode, maybe? When when he, like, there was a bunch of, like, bad Fungi, and so they he slaughtered, like, a third of his population just to make sure they didn't starve to death? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right about that. Which, I mean, if you're talking about the uh, the Romulans, it's not too far of a call. It's, it's true. Like that's, it's all interrelated. And again, it's just a, it's just a, it's just evidence of how closely the writers are examining the universe and how many Easter eggs they're throwing in like that. And it's, it's stuff. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to know what this is to enjoy the show. Right. You could just be like, Oh, she's being sarcastic graphy about murderous fungi before you realize that it actually has connotations to it. 
I want to talk a bit more about like the Picard sick thing because I don't know. I I think that while it was a little bit funny to have him tack this announcement on in a very impersonal Picard way to the end of this, I, I kind of wish that they made things. I wouldn't say more implicit, but like I loved the scene right beforehand where it wasn't outright said and it didn't need to be outright said where you know Gerardi wakes him up she's we get a, a re-emergence of the old school tricorder and basically says like okay this thing has to be wrong because and Picard basically interrupts her and just says I suspect the tricorder is fine and he just sort of like has a very satisfied satisfied is a weird word but he has like a very sure smile on his face and then Gerardi starts to cry I feel like that's all you need you know, I, I feel like you just need somebody to infer, even if it's just a scene where it cuts back being like, okay, thank you for telling us, Jean-Luc, and seeing everybody react. Uh, maybe they need to catch people up, and maybe they need to re-show uh, the dad from Freaks and Geeks telling Picard what's happening. But I don't know, I just really love that Gerardi-Picard scene, and that I wasn't sure if it needed to be followed up with Picard continuing to be one of the world's most awkward bosses by announcing that he's dying. Yeah, it was a little magnanimous of him to bring that in at that exact point, but I guess he also had to explain why he passed out. I guess that's true, and also then muttered oddly, like, thank you all for coming. Like, I, I don't know if that was delirium, or is that him, like, visualizing himself as, at his funeral? Did he think those would be his final words? I'm not entirely sure. Because, again, we didn't see what happened. I will also say, uh, before that happens, there's just really cool sequence right before that, of after the, the lights in the Lost Arena turn off, Rio sparking his lighter. And if you notice, every time he sparks it, it focuses on, on a different character. I just thought that was a, a really cool way to use light in a show that, I wouldn't say not necessarily uh, shirks the idea of lighting, but definitely makes sure to fill basically every scene with light. So when moments like this happen, they're able to take advantage of it. Yeah, it was it was very powerful. And especially, I think it added to the disorientation of what had just happened, because you still don't know. You don't know if it's hostile, if you don't know if it was, if the flower was protecting them. You don't know if the ship is completely kaput. Uh, it's just, there's a lot of unknowns at that point. And to have you in the dark there and like switching from POV to POV is really interesting. Is the ship out of uh, you know, out of contention here, Jess, because I know that Rafi and Rios went back. I mean, were they trying to use the artifact somehow to revive it? I think they were trying to. Yeah, I think they were trying to fix the ship somehow. I don't know how the artifact plays into that, but I think you have a conversation aboard the artifact where it's like, well, we can get the food replicators up and running. So if we're here for a while, we're going to be okay. Right, they use the long-range scanners to see the 218 Warbirds, which, man, Section 31 is just outdone in so many ways. They really <laughs> put a hard quota on their numbers. They could have had 218 Section 31 ships in Disco Season 2. Yeah, 218 Warbirds, I feel like, is the 30 to 50 feral hogs of the Star Trek universe. <laughs> exactly. We need to have these weapons done just in case 218 Wom That's basically uh, Sutra's speech at the end, right? Like, let's gear up. We have 218 Romulan Warbirds to take down. Yeah, it's basically. But I think there's a lot more coming than that. I think it's going to be pretty – it's going to be a pretty epic battle next week. We have to assume that we got that call out to Starfleet. Starfleet's going to be there and we're going to call down the higher order of androids from wherever they are and we're going to have 218 warbirds. Like that's a party, man. 
Yeah, it's going to sort of be like the end of The Hobbit with the Battle of the Five Armies. I'm very intrigued to see what this sort of cabal of androids that apparently live outside of space and time will A, look like, and B, fight like. Because I feel like if they are able to get a hold of technology that is like years distance in the future, Disco Season 3 era, like they could probably vaporize the entire Romulan fleet in the blink of an eye. I think that's kind of what they're banking on doing. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I, I, and it makes sense. And that's the thing, again, that I love about Star Trek is I feel like when it's well done, it does try to, if not make us sympathize with the enemy, at least make us see their perspective. And for what it's worth, I guess, as we can talk about a bit about the, the actual admonition, not sort of like the scrambled porn signal that we got of the admonition <laughs> back with the Romulans. Uh, but, you know, it makes sense from the synth perspective, especially from Sutra's perspective, everyone on their planet has a partner at this point except for sutra she lost jana a long time ago and who was that at the hands of humanity and so it really does make sense from her perspective why and i know there's been some comparisons i think uh someone tweeted us of like oh i think we found the rachel uh <laughs> to make an orphan black reference of this but i think almost like rachel she's someone who underwent some sort of trauma and was sort of raised under this philosophy. So then when she's given the opportunity, when someone reaches out to her and says like, hey, here's my card, if you ever need a hand, she's going to say, hell yeah, I'm dialing the number there because I, I am done and these people caused me immense heartbreak and I don't want them to do it again. Yeah, well, it's interesting to get a new perspective on the admonition because it seems like it seems like everybody – comes to it with their own baggage. And so when you have like a group of deeply devoted Romulans are the only ones that watch the admonition, it's kind of like it just feeds on itself. It's like they're going to mm. take the same thing out of it because they're all coming from the same place. Right. It's a lot of confirmation ideas. bias. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much preaching to the hooded, solemn choir of suicidal Romulans. But you have somebody from the outside that then experiences it. And Gerardi also got it from the perspective of the Romulans. They're saying, this is what we want you to understand. And so to have Sutra pull it out and get at it from a completely different perspective, just like, well, the part that the Romulans left out of the admonition is that they all brought it on themselves. Mm. It's like, well, maybe you don't try to kill us and we won't have to exterminate you. Yeah, your evolution will be their extinction. I guess there also must be like software updates to this admonition because it also, it just, I still don't understand, Jess, if this thing is apparently hundreds of thousands of years old, why there's like data and we get to see more images like an Android eye with the Starfleet logo in it. Uh, like that, it does seem like more modern day images that they happen to throw into some archival footage of, you know, lava flowing and that fox dying. Yeah, and some borrowed planets exploding from Discovery. Yeah, now we can officially confirm, I do not believe it's control. Uh, I mean, maybe we'll see it show yeah. up. Maybe that's the big umbrella, uh, you know, tech that's going to come down and save the day. But I think we can officially say that, no, much like the Star Trek movies, they just reuse footage. Pretty much, yeah. But I think, I think it's really, if we're pulling these super evolved synths from outside of space and time, of course... We can have images of things that have happened in the recent past. It can be hundreds of thousands of years old. And, you know, time is a flat circle. It can also be from the future. It's mm. also, you know, we've had this conversation with the prophets in the wormhole. It's the same idea. If they can transcend space and time, they can see the future and they can see the past. 
I don't think that's totally out of line that you have some Starfleet references spl- sprinkled throughout. You are the Gerardi. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah but thank, I thank thought- God we didn't have uh, Bruce Maddox come speaking through the voice of the prophets. Yeah, a little floating Bruce Maddox head. Uh, I do think that it was interesting that when we saw it through Gerardi's eyes, it was like watching Event Horizon. And then it's more meditative and almost beautiful when you see Sutrasi. It's like watching Koyaanisqatsi. Right. And I mean, I'm assuming, was Issa Briones the one narrating the admonition? I'm assuming. Yeah. Well, it was many of her. It was like her voice layered on itself, which also felt very orphan black to me. Yeah, exactly. And I think that also makes sense if, if you know, if this group is trying to speak through her voice quite literally and i mean maybe this is also an advantage of synthetic technology because i don't believe jess and maybe there were a spare couple of times when this was done but i really can't think of a non-vulcan ever really being able to mind melt that hadn't already you know been connected with a vulcan beforehand yeah it seems like we were always taught that that's something they can do biologically, but apparently it's something you can learn if you're a synth. Yeah, and I guess maybe it's sort of like, I don't know, the the that one person from that one bad season of Heroes who like was able to watch a YouTube video of someone doing something and then could pick up the skill. Maybe just synthetic technology has evolved to a point where Sutra can study every ounce of, of Vulcan life and is able to just pick up mind melds that maybe it's less midichlorian and it's more that the force is something that you're just in control of from a a more mental perspective yeah well and also i think if you're a synth and you have this like more highly evolved brain you can kind of shape it to do what you want it to do because it's not magic what the vulcans are doing yeah that's very true man they are scary now i get what the romulans are talking about yeah I, i mean i totally get this schism business I can see both sides of it, which, again, is something Star Trek excels in. So Sutra, obviously, is is setting things up. So I guess her intention in killing Saga in the worst way possible by impaling her eye on her own hummingbird necklace and then setting Narek free, was it merely to, like, have Narek be the fall guy and use him as a reason to attack Romulans. It seems like he's running off to the artifact. Does she want him to do something in the artifact? What do you think Sutra's big plan is at this moment when it comes to the Narek side of things? I think it's just as simple as Narek got out and he's going to kill us all. And he he's, you know, he's dangerous. We have to stop him. I don't even think he needs to do anything. Just let him out. And he he's a very convenient scapegoat in this in this regard. And I want to bring a couple of other things to our attention in this scene. Um, if Saga is an android, is it really going to kill her to stab her in the eye? Isn't she just going to like lose the perfect golden eye? It really seems like this would kill a human, but it's really – I don't buy that it's necessarily going to kill a synth. I think we've seen worse happen to Data. Yeah, could it be that maybe, much like many electronic devices, have that little pinhole yeah. that resets the device? Maybe because Sutra's an android herself, she knows that place and was able to navigate the hummingbird beak into that area and shut her down? Yeah, that's probably it. It takes a synth to kill a synth. Exactly. Like, there's that particular part of the brain that she decided to focus on. Because otherwise, yeah, I could imagine that they are built to withstand a lot uh so and then 
I mean, theoretically, if you're investigating this, that should even point more so to a synth doing this. But of course, they're sort of, you know, whipped into a frenzy at that moment that I don't think anyone's really thought it over yet before throwing Picard into house arrest. Yeah. And I I love that Picard at this point tries to do something about it. Like, but it's also kind of Picard's undoing, like the sheer Mm. effing hubris, if you will. He gets up and he's like trying to stir them up and say, oh, look, you don't have to do this. You can have this more measured approach. You can, you can choose life and you can choose progress. And Soong's like, yeah, how'd that go for you after Mars? Yeah, I love how much the past haunts Picard right now, because that's where we found him at the beginning of this series, right? He was sort of a shell of a man. He said he hadn't been living anymore because this is someone who the past in many different measures had made him, he felt, a lesser person. And now that past is coming back to haunt him in so many ways. Uh, You know, even before that, when Sutra's giving her big speech, she turns to Picard and says, I'm not like you. I will rescue those I can rescue. My people will survive. Uh, you know, so even Soji's going to turn on him saying, this isn't the Romulan rescue. Basically, like, we're not going to be uh, just people you want to rescue for your own redemption. Like, these are, we actually want to survive. You know, it really does seem like Picard is left alone here at the end of the episode, which really sets up the stakes perfectly for the finale, where even Gerardi turns on him again, because this is the culmination of her life's work, and she finally feels like she's where she belongs. And I think that for someone who has been trying to seek a new community uh, from friends old and new this entire series, to have Jean-Luc Picard in this place, especially dying, is like a horrifically emotionally vulnerable place especially to have your literal past demons come to life in front of you and be used as an argument against you in this hour of need this is not how we typically kill our starfleet captains mike we usually let them go out in a blaze of glory with this noble self-sacrifice and now it's like no actually you're gonna be in a cell and everyone's mad at you He's got to have a big moment of redemption next week. I would imagine so. Whether he breaks out, whether they go to him with like their tail tucked between their metallic legs and say, like, we need your help. I mean, speaking of those, that self-sacrifice, I'm so intrigued by the conversation that happens earlier between Soji and Picard, where mm-hmm. she is so intrigued about this idea of sacrifice, the logic behind it, which obviously knowing what her father does probably has her even more mystified. And basically Picard talks about, you know, depends on who's holding the knife, the difference between doing what's right and not believing that you have a choice. You know, it's Soji is probably the most, uh, it's probably, you know, the, the ollie of the stabs that happened to Picard Snow here as he gets betrayed because he's someone that she really was trying to connect with, but she herself is really having an internal battle here where she is going along with Picard's insistence of like, okay, we can just evacuate the planet. But when you have your own people, your own family telling you that's not an option anymore, you know, we have to get blood on our hands. It really has her questioning her entire logic. Yeah, and it's interesting. I didn't know up until the point where she comes out and says so. I wasn't sure which side she was going to choose. Totally agree. Because, again, this is someone who she's gaining more trust in Picard, but she barely knows herself. How instinctual are her feelings about Capelius when she lands, assuming that she had no prior memories of this place before she got here. Yeah, and I like the way she describes it, where she says it's like she's watching a hollow that she's seen before, but she doesn't really remember it. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, I know at least like a half a dozen Simpsons episodes that I feel that way about. <laughs> just a half a dozen, huh? Yeah, just a half. Yeah, exactly. They're sort of like in the in the gray area of the memory. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and she, she talks about, you know, what if killing is the only way to survive? So I guess by the end of that conversation with Picard, she sort of had, you have a sense as to what side she'll be on of like, I would never do this ordinarily, but I guess when it comes to survival and feeling that you don't have a choice, if the other choice is death, I suppose it's not completely illogical to kill in order to save others. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it makes, it makes sense from that standpoint. And also like she's just learned who she is and now there's a whole bunch of other beings like her. Right. And that's got to be kind of a trip too. And, and then she starts to kind of unlock what that means to her. Exactly. Not to mention that I, I could also imagine when you are in this big scene that is literally filled to the brim with your people and they are all whooping a cry of, hey, let's mobilize ourselves to take out humanity. Are you really going to be that one Sith to be like, I don't think that's a good idea? You sort of have to go along with like the mob mentality almost of like, okay, they've been here for a long time. They must know something that I don't. I still need to grasp an understanding of what being a synthetic is like. Let me sort of be a loyal soldier to them for the time being. Yeah, I think I think she's she's really trying to choose the side that's most likely to win in this scenario. Ah, listen, uh, I mean, it makes sense from just a you know a numbers perspective, I suppose. And I mean, I hope next week we do not see a reunion between her and Narek because I did not realize how grateful I was to have a Narekless episode until this episode. <laughs> Yeah, I, I want to talk about Narek for a second. I know you don't, but we kind of have to. I I thought he actually, he's he's lost some power, and I kind of don't mind this. I don't mind it when he's on the bottom, you know? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't like it when he's, like, we're supposed to believe that people are falling for his BS, but when he's very clearly not able to sell anything that Soji wants to buy— it was interesting to me to try to figure out like how much of this is actually real because I'm still saying 0.0%. I'd like to believe so as well, which again would make that scene awesome. But I don't know. Maybe it's just like my thoughts about the Picard writer's room. Part of me thinks that they do – they do. he does fall in love with her at least at some point. So then when he does be like, I love you, it's equally bad on both sides because like whether he's manipulative – or whether he's being sincere, either way, it's just really creepy. And I agree, good on Soji for being for calling him a sad and twisted thing and saying that he disgusts her because he disgusts me. So like I'm, <laughs> I don't know if people are necessarily Team Narek at this point. Uh, he's also going to be running into a very interesting situation aboard that artifact. Yeah, I, I liked the preview for next week. Had him in this sort of Mad Max getup. Yeah, and so I, I wonder though, because if he is falling for soji and wants to protect her there's a non-zero chance jess that he defects to the synth side and joins up with these guys to take out his sister and the romulans which is a heel turn i would expect but not necessarily like to see i'm gonna say it goes the other way actually mike oh, interesting. Here's, here's my prediction for the next episode we have so many factions that are converging on this unnamed planet and i think 
we have to, by the end of the episode, we will determine which bad guy is the baddest guy of all. And then everybody else is going to come together with a big plan to defeat those bad guys. Mm. And I think what's probably going to happen here is you will need everybody's resources to take out these super evolved synths that are coming to destroy all of the organic life in the universe. I think the synths show up and then that is going to require Starfleet and the artifact and the Romulans and the humans on the ground to all team up in order to undo this thing that has been unleashed. I could definitely see that, right? This feels like those Star Trek movies with like the V'ger or when they quote unquote meet Mm -hmm. God in Star Trek five, where it's like, okay, here's this big thing external you know force we're all going to have to join together to get rid of this external force and sort of purge it from the universe forever because i can also imagine that i don't know if this synth cabal is surviving the season finale because i have no idea what star trek picard and the future of star trek looks with the knowledge that this alliance exists that there's an entire federation of androids that supersedes time and space itself Yeah, I think we also may see some of these synths jumping ship to defeat their own kind. Mm -hmm. I think we've spent so much time with Soji, we can't necessarily feel like she is on the side of wrong. And I think kind of the same thing with Jurati, who is a very complicated character and who is Team Synth right now. I think we probably see a more moderate approach to synthetic life. I have to imagine that by the end of Episode 10 – we have decided that it's okay to do some synth stuff. Yeah, I mean... E- even if we are risking opening the hell gate of evolved synths coming down to destroy everything carbon-based. Exactly, everything in moderation. I mean, I'll put up my old bold prediction here. I think Soji will kill Sutra next episode. Yep. I think, like, if you're talking about sacrifice and getting blood on your hands, I think that's a perfect way to show it. I think it's a perfect moral quandary for her, of her killing... Not necessarily her sister, but almost like her older ancestor, uh, and that showing how she is willing to essentially work against her own kind if it does if they behave in a way that she does not find morally fit. Yeah, that's that's definitely a possibility. And it's funny, I think we can't really talk about them in in terms of family at this point, because I don't think we can say that they're all like a big, happy group of siblings. And I also I wonder if Soji is really Data's daughter or if she's kind of his niece. It's it's very hard to tell. Yeah. So I guess because, you know, as soon as like, I guess I'm like a father to everyone here. But like, I guess is he Soji's uncle then? Or, you know, I guess she was created by Maddox, who is more so like his business partner. So I guess it's more of like the colloquial uncle than the blood uncle. This is a very confusing synthetic family tree, Jess. Yeah, like she shows up, she's she's doing like the Buster Bluth, hello, Uncle Father. <laughs> exactly. Like, I don't know if there's a pop secret going on anytime soon. Maybe that will happen. I don't know. Do you think, uh, do you think Alton soon lives to see the end of next episode? No, I think, I think... Anybody that's marked for noble sacrifice, I think I think we could do a noble sacrifice draft right here. Okay. All right. Let's do it. All right. So I'm saying noble sacrifice. And do you want to draft first or should I? I why don't you go first? Because you I think you have a clear idea right now. 
I have a pretty clear idea. Um, I actually, I, I think I'm picking Elnor number one in the Noble Sacrifice draft. Ooh, interesting. Because I was thinking about that as well. But at the same time, like, it's tough. Because part of me wants to say, like, his goodbye with Picard was very emotional. I actually really loved that scene because I, I liked Picard's reaction to Elnor where he starts to raise his voice and then he stops himself. Like, this is the parent Picard. This is, like, the Picard that's learned a bit from Troy and Riker and has decided to exercise more patience with people like him and Soji saying, I'm very, very proud of you. And I guess the question is, is that the last scene they're going to have together? There could be a chance that they would be, which, you know, would would mean that he does do a noble sacrifice. But at the same time, I could also very likely see a situation where, like, he is such a different character to everybody else that they would want to keep him on for whatever season two is. It's true. And he's great. Like his perspective is just kind of fantastic. Like it's not just that he's very blunt when he gives his opinion of things, but he also doesn't mask his other emotions. He's happy when he's happy and he's sad when he's sad. And he's really upfront about how he's feeling all the time. And that's kind of fun. Right. Exactly. Uh, There's no guile to him. Exactly. He's guileless and guinanless. Uh, yes. I mean, do I, do we count? Can I, pick Picard does that count even though we think that he won't necessarily be dead by the end of this episode it's it's a technicality I think Picard is off the table because Picard is the name of the show okay then I would say I mean I don't know if I'm calling this a noble sacrifice but I will say for her cause I'm gonna put Sutra up there that like I think she will die for her cause even if it's if it's considered more ignoble than noble from our perspective yeah I well I think she has to die by the end of the episode yeah, I don't think as as great as Issa Briones is, I don't think we're seeing two of her going into next season unless we find out yet another version has been created or like Jana survives somehow. I was just happy. I mean, let's be real. I was just happy when we got to the planet that they weren't all Soji. Oh my god, could you imagine? I don't know. I think yeah. all, that I'd be more perturbed by Alton Soong if that was the case <laughs> that he made all these sins in one person's image. Yeah, well, like half of them look like Soji, and then half of them look like young Data. It's like, oh, you have a type. Yeah, it was. It, it's already weird that they have to create two every time they create one. I, I still don't understand why that has to be the case. I think it's with the positronic fractal cloning techniques that was talked about. Don't try to explain this, Mike. You don't know either. Oh, I don't. I'm just throwing out <laughs> random types of uh, of atom components here but i guess it's the thing where like it just naturally creates two maybe and you just don't want to throw one away i'm not entirely sure i guess just besides elnor like do you think any in our noble sacrifices here do you predict like could we see a rios or a gerardi or a raffi death or do you think all these characters are going to survive to season two i think rios is pretty safe i think raffi is pretty safe um I think Gerardi, there's an outside chance that Gerardi bites it. I think outside chance, Narek switches teams and saves the universe by dying. Mm, I don't know. I, I feel like, so with Gerardi, I would agree with you, except we got more hashtag Jurios content this episode, Jess, which surprised the pants off of me. I thought it was just a one-night tryst. Clearly it wasn't. Like, he steps up and, like, protects her being like don't mind mill with her and then there's that really interesting scene in spot two's living room when <laughs> he like touches the side of her face and they just sort of stand there for a few seconds which makes me think that they totally did it off screen uh before he said goodbye to her but we can't be entirely sure so 
I had no idea that was a continuing thing, but I feel like in showing that, that they're definitely hinting towards that romance growing in season two. And that makes sense. And I think we also need Jurati around at the end when we repeal the synth ban and there's work to be done on synths. I think she sticks around. But you bring up something else that I wanted to talk about this week, Mike. There was so much face touching in this episode. And maybe it's just a sign of the times. But every time <laughs> someone like reached their hand up and like ran it over someone else's face, I'm like, no, don't do that. Yeah, I guess is that I mean, even outside of the timeliness of it, I, I mean, is that like does anyone feel good when they get their face touched? I mean, I feel like it's either way too ticklish or it just feels completely awkward. I feel like you really have to trust and have distinct feelings towards the person if you allow them to caress your face and not have it be either horrifically awkward or patronizing. I think having seen the video to Lionel Richie's Hello, <laughs> I can see some utility for it, like even if you're not a blind sculptor. I was going to say, I mean, there's definitely a utility if you have a certain uh, lack of function. Yeah, but I think I think there could be something sensual about it done the right way. But I think that's what they were getting at here. But it's just like this dropped at a really weird time where we don't want to think about the sensuality of touching each other's faces. There's also I feel like this episode really lingered, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing because um, I think that to Picard's point, you know, uh, he says in early in the episode, I feel like we're always saying goodbyes, and I feel like. I'm still counting this as like the first part of the finale. So this does feel like a way for the show to say goodbye, at least for a season. And they're really taking time to marinate in small actions or stares or silences, which I feel like given some of the pulse pounding action in previous episodes, they have not been wont to do. And it's a change in pace. I didn't expect considering we are now entering the end game of this first season we've arrived on the planet of the final boss i'm assuming so for them to do this from a tonal perspective i guess maybe they figured they already had a two-part finale so they could take their time in their first half but it was very distinct well it was like getting that game of thrones episode where everybody's in the in winterfell overnight and you know some of them do it and some of them tell bad stories and some of them sing and I, I think it's okay to have that sort of like ramping up to the final battle. Are you saying and that when the synth cabal comes, it's just going to shroud everything in darkness? I, I think we better be planning on having all the lights turned out so you can see what's going on in the battle. Oh, yes. boy, uh, Rios, get your lighters. Your lighters going into overtime. Uh, I mean, and to that point, I feel like it's almost the – it did with its penultimate episode with Game of Thrones – textbookly did not do with this penultimate episode is really trying to end on this big climactic note and i guess putting picard under house arrest and assumingly alone really for the first major time this season on the way out health wise is a pretty big stake but it didn't like kill off a character outside of poor saga no it did not um and i think it's pretty it's pretty obvious that we're also going to get one of these like starship mine moments where Picard breaks out on his own and you left him by himself. And so now he's going to make you sorry you did that. Right, exactly. Like his space MacGyver comes back into action. Oh, totally. But I also I want to call attention. I think maybe the most effective and powerful one on one moment we got leading into this battle is probably Raffi. Mm. Uh, Getting genuinely emotional and her evolution over the course of this season has been really effective and really genuine. And for her to have gone from very skeptical of everything 
that Picard is about and might want from her into like genuinely thanking him for bringing her back to life and telling him with all earnestness that she loves him. I thought that was – you could see the change in her that the events have brought about. Right. I feel like this episode did a really great job. And again, if it's functioning as the, the first part of a two-part finale, of really – calling back and highlighting the arcs of these characters over 10 episodes. And Raffi is a great example. Even before the one-on-one scene with Picard, there's this one moment when Arcana uh, sort of age shames Picard by talking about all the wrinkles that he has. But there's this one moment when she starts to approach him and Raffi has this instinct to sort of like move to him to protect him. And I'm sure it's, it's clearly unconscious, but it speaks to, as you said, how she feels about him now, which is way different than her holding a loaded disruptor at him, standing, you know, at the Vasquez rocks being like, you ruined my life. This, I, she, even though she's maybe hit rock bottom again with her son dismissing her, I bet she's sort of like Picard, she feels more alive than ever, uh, sort of having her suspicions confirmed while also being able to be in space again and... Yeah, that that final scene, and I'll put final in quotations because I'm sure it's far from final in the general aspect of the series, but basically when Rafi throws her arms around him and says, after everything you've done for me, I need to say thank you and I love you, you could tell how, I mean, Jean-Luc Picard doesn't say I love you. It took him a hundred plus episodes for him to finally play freaking poker with his crew. He's not going to (laughs) throw I love you out there just freehand. And the fact that he did not only shows their history, but I think it's also him sort of rep- showing his own mortality, maybe throwing Rafi a bone a bit and being like, I do feel this way, but also I know I may never see her again. So even though it is awkward and difficult for him to the fact that he's like just awkwardly throws a wave to Rios as he walks away pretty silent, it's a really cute moment between the two. And you could tell that really meant a lot to Rafi. Yeah, and I think it, it means he's been changed too. And I think it's really hard to take a character that we've known for 30 years and give him something to do that changes him. So that's pretty amazing as well. Right. Uh, And I also will say, maybe just Chekhov's weird unnamed device that she was given by the androids that fixes things, quote, if you use your imagination. I can imagine (laughs) if and when they run into trouble next episode that that's going to like do all sorts of crazy things. A weird, weird device that fixes things if you use your imagination. I can tell you like at least 15 different kids shows on Netflix right now that have that exact plot device. Right. I feel like it's, it almost feels like a Rick and Morty thing that you watch on interdimensional cable <laughs> too, of just like riffing on this thing that, hey, you could think about it, does it anything? It also feels a little like sonic screwdrivery from Doctor yep. Who of like, here's this general metallic device that you can point at something and it will help do things. But I'm intrigued to see exactly what that may be. And if Raffi is able to pocket it moving forward, she could end up being like a literal jack of all trades with this device, you know, holstered in her pocket. Yeah, well, I think at very least it repairs the La Serena and gets them out of the planet at the right moment. Right. I, I don't think it's uh, I don't think the La Serena is doing a noble sacrifice anytime soon. I do agree that they get it started up. I think it has way too much personality in the form of those holograms that I do not think they're junking it anytime soon. Well, no, you definitely need the holograms, and it would be way too much to just give Rios a new ship next season and be like, yeah, we re-recorded all the holograms. Right, and I mean, you have to feel uh, right that Santiago Cabrera is like, 
Okay, I can't have Issa Brione show me up for playing multiple characters. I have to remind people of who the real deal is here, playing multiple accented people. Yeah, he he's like, I want to be the caster clones. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, well, if season three of Orphan Black shows anything, he may not be long for this world then. Yeah, that's that's no good. And again, I don't want I don't intend any disrespect to either Cabrera or Issa Brionis, but I think they are doing an admirable job and it's great, but it just reminds me of how amazing Orphan Orphan Black was. Yeah, just as a pure concept of acting, it really is out of this world. If people are looking for a show to binge, uh, you know, during self-isolation, look it up. It's an awesome show. It goes off the rails a bit with all the thriller conspiracy stuff that yeah. happens in the latter half, but still, like, just watching it uh, for Tatiana Maslany's performances alone is worth the price of admission. Yeah, I went to, before ahead of the final season, I went to a panel discussion with the cast of the show, and I showed up, and even though, like, intellectually I know that it's Tatiana Maslany, she's sitting up there on stage, and I'm like, where's the rest of the cast? <laughs> Maybe they should have, like, filled all the chairs with holograms of Tatiana Maslany as other characters. Yeah, I I really was shocked. I, it was like there were, like, two other actors from the show and her. And I was like, where's everybody else? Like, where's the actress that plays Allison? Where's the actress that plays Rachel? <laughs> and it was – it was very, it was very fascinating. Whereas I think if you had the Picard cast up there, I wouldn't be looking for the actress that plays Dodge and the actress that plays Sutra and the actress that plays Soji. Right. I mean, uh, rest poor James Lupton's soul, but I can't imagine inside the actor studio for Picard of like, let me speak to ENH. <laughs> you know, I, I think that Santiago Cabrera is just like pulling out some accents, questionable at best, and then that's sort of it. But that being said, only one more episode, and then, Jess, we have a possible universe ahead of us for many, many people to be playing many, many roles. Maybe Picard can pull out his Vichy Frenchman again. I, I, You know he's just itching to do that. I hope so. I hope we get another uh, heist on Free Cloud episode, even if they're not allowed back there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think they're banned from from Free Cloud, but that doesn't mean they can't, like, create a, you know, a holodeck escape room for it. Oh, man. Yeah, I'll be intrigued to see going into season two because like you said i think the show has done a great job of creating new experiences for characters old and new while simultaneously creating both easter eggs and very well entrenched plot lines that reference previous episodes that being said i kind of would love a standalone episode in season two that does take place on whatever version of a 24th century late 24th century holodeck is I think we've got to get one at some point. Like everybody knows how much those were fun in the previous series. So I don't want one every season, but every couple of seasons, I'd be totally cool with it. As long as the plot line isn't, oh no, the program's broken, but you have to make sure that you stay in it. But also you could actually die in this one. Like, cause I feel like maybe that's one of the reasons why they started to really scrap the holodeck slash holosuite episodes is because essentially it was the same stakes repeated. Well, it's like if you do that too many times, I think at a certain point, you have to say, this technology is not safe. And we did this with synths, you know? So it's not like they never do that. But it's like, okay, how many people have to die in a holodeck before you say, we're shutting down the holodeck before somebody else falls prey to the rogue program? Theoretically, they could have said, let's ban holodeck technology after 
a uh, like an uh, an AI version of Professor Moriarty not only escape the holodeck but try <laughs> to commandeer a ship to escape. Yeah, I, I think that only needs to happen once before you take it back to the drawing board. Exactly. Like maybe we need to work this so that our subjects are not able to break out of the reality they live in and, and infest ours. It's really problematic. I I swear it's it's not okay. What I, we're so worried about the singularity, we're so worried about the synths going rogue, and yet that is isn't that a synth going rogue? Right. Exactly. Like uh, maybe there'll be an episode where. Picard's, uh, you know, hollow ready room that's supposed to be at the winery right now just, like, goes completely off the fritz and it becomes, like, a dark version of the winery, you know, almost like a mirror universe winery where things are just all cuckoo. Like, all of the casks are full of arbor mist. Exactly, and, like, maybe the wine's made of people now and Picard's on the hunt. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I look forward to the dark vineyard study episode of season two of Picard. I was going to say, that's definitely, yeah, wait, that's definitely like at the top of their queue. I'm entirely sure. Let's take a break from all the, uh, you know, very complicated plots we have to have Picard investigating a world where people are drank. <laughs> or maybe the, maybe the thing that goes wrong in his study and turns it dark is like one of the table legs is wobbly Ooh. and he has to go find a piece of paper to shove underneath it. I would love that bottle episode that takes place on the La Serena. I feel like the La Serena action actually has actually been very fun uh, in the episodes before we actually landed here. It was like an opportunity for, I mean, I guess the as much as Gerardi was complaining about the wide-open boringness of space, the confines were really starting to get to her type of character. And just knowing how dark and mysterious all these people are, I'm assuming that's only going to continue. Though, I mean... To your point, I guess we'll find out next week what season two of Picard might look like, whether it's going to be a little more episodic of this crew exploring. Because remember, this was a ragtag crew assembled specifically for this mission, for this purpose. You know, Rios was hired. Rafi was brought on just through the connection with Picard. Gerardi just, you know, happened to have a couple of happenstance meetings with him. Elnor, Picard just thought of up the top of his head. I wonder if they formalize and crystallize themselves as a crew or whether they get settled back into their normal lives and then they somehow get called back into service again in season two for a different purpose. Yeah, just when I thought was out, they pull me back in. Mm -hmm. If it becomes like a, I guess that was sort of like a Star Trek, the original, the motion picture, right? Just like calling everybody mm -hmm. from their, hey, Admiral Picard, come on down and start captaining this ship again. Or yeah, Admiral Kirk, I, think, I should say. Yeah. I, I think that's kind of like that's how the movies always work. So I'm not going to be surprised if they have it in season two. But it's also this experience has bonded these people. They maybe they've decided that they're going to be a crew from here on out. I mean, I think that Rios and Gerardi are definitely going to stay within each other's orbit, whatever that means. And yeah, I can imagine that. Sad as it is to say, I don't know how much of a family Rafi has to go back to. So I can imagine her hanging around as well. And uh, maybe if if new android Picard needs some advice in sort of acclimating to his new reality, I'm sure Soji would be someone to help not only walk through the process, but experience that alongside him. Oh, sure. They can just be like two androids out fighting crime. I, you know what? That'd actually be a pretty damn good series. Yeah, I'm into it. Like, if that's season two, I'm totally here for it. Absolutely. Android cops. Yep. Android cops. So on that note, Mike, is there anything else we feel like we need to call out in this episode? The only thing was that it was very odd that the one picture in Maddox's study, study was stuck on that thing we already saw of him and Gerardi kissing. And it just sort of 
It was like a, a a vine. It just sort of replayed the same three seconds over and over again. Made, I'm sure it made it very awkward for Picard on top of the fact that he couldn't reach Starfleet. Yeah, it, it was like this actually has some pretty interesting implications in the Harry Potter universe as mm. well, if you think about it. That's true. Do you think uh, Maddox approved of Picard using his study even posthumously? Uh, I think I would not want anybody else in my study. Yeah, though, to be fair, he did some pretty devious things. So maybe like Soong, he's just naturally forgiving to people no matter what they did. Yeah, of course, he's not He's not here to protest either. Well, do you think maybe Maddox left because he was pissed that Soong made a cat and he's more of a dog person? It it could be, but I mean, what else is Soong going to make? I love the shout out to Spot 2, by the way. Like, the butterflies were yeah. nice, but like, the Spot 2 is very, very cute and proves that Maybe Soong is not so embittered by uh, his mechanical brother's legacy as much as we may think. Yeah, but if we're being honest, Mike, if some if some synth is going to go rogue and take over, it's definitely going to be the synthetic cat. I would imagine so. I could imagine a, an instance where maybe Spot 2 is actually going to be the savior of the entire universe. Non-zero chance. Maybe maybe Spot 2 is the noble sacrifice. Yeah, he, he has like eight other lives after this. It's true. Okay. I, I let's put it let's put our prediction down. Spot two saves everybody next episode. There we go. Buzzer beater, but I think we got it in. Yep. It's a Hail Mary. Uh so I think on that happy, cuddly, fuzzy note, we can wrap things up for this week. We want to thank everybody who's tuning in and supporting us and sharing your wacky theories and arguing with our hot takes like for instance Picard is the best Star Trek ever don't at me we are here for all of it and we love hearing from you so you there are a few ways you can give us feedback you can rate and review us in the iTunes store that's helpful because it boosts our profile helps us get more listeners you can also leave us a comment on poshorecaps.com find the thread for this episode drop your comment there and of course the easiest and quickest way to get in touch with us is always Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Haymaker Hattie. You can find me at a Mike Bloom type. You can always check out my writing about Star Trek Picard at CBR.com slash tag slash Picard. This week, episode summary as per usual. And I did a, a quick little article about our new character, Alton Soong, uh Brent Spiner's long legacy of playing members of the Soong family, both of the Android and humanoid variety, as well as his sort of a role of maybe, uh, I guess, what, a, a human in uh, mechanical clothing and his ultimate support of the synths, which should play a very interesting role next week. So be sure to check that all out. I can't wait. I'm going to check it out right after I get off the phone with you. I can't believe we have one more week, Jess. It's it's felt like a it's a been a very very strange ten weeks, but I'm I've always been happy to have a series like Star Trek Picard to cling to. I think we could definitely reinvestigate your "Don't at me" tweet next week when we have the full first season in the rearview mirror. But this has just been a delight in so many ways, and it's really excited me as to how we're going to not only finish up the first season but look ahead to the second one. Yeah. It I'm co-signing all of that. I think it's just been such an interesting ride, and especially because these past 10 weeks have actually felt like 10 years, mm -hmm. 
outside of Star Trek. It's just been really nice to sit down with you and talk about everything that's going on in this world and what it means. Um, and even just to kind of unpack, like even the utopian vision of Star Trek has its flaws. I think that's been an interesting thing to explore across all of this season. So I'm excited to get a postmortem on it at the end of next week's episode. Right. And I feel like if androids were to drop in on humanity now, they would approach them much like Arcana approached Picard, just sort of being like, your face, it speaks grief and, you know, tragedy. And everyone's like, stop touching my face. Just, stop it, please. Like, Stop it, stop it. You're a carrier. <laughs> you don't even know it. Yeah, look, I just, you know, I don't know what I just gave you right now, but get your hands off my face. Listen, I don't know Go what, wash you, up. I don't know what you do with your twin, but practice social distancing with me, okay? Yes, exactly. And it's, it's the great thing about a podcast. We are the ultimate social distancers. Amen. All right. So we want to thank everybody once again for listening up. Thanks to everybody behind the scenes. Thanks, as always, to Post Show Recaps for letting us talk about all this nonsense. And live long and prosper, everyone. And we'll talk to you next week. 